Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. At just after 8 p.m. on November 8th, 1994. Darren and Laura Holsher heard a gunshot in their neighborhood. When they looked outside, they saw their neighbor, Farafrada, scream and fall to the ground in her garage. Then they watched as an unmasked man approached her and shot her point-blank in the head. They called 911, but despite a quick response from police, the gunman was gone by the time they arrived. Investigators had no clue who would have wanted Farah dead, but it wouldn't take long for people to start making suggestions, and they were all suggesting the same person. This is Monsters. Moving to another country was not easy for Farah Backer. She'd lived most of her childhood in the same neighborhood and had known all of her friends and even her fiancé since she was young. The thought of leaving them behind was daunting, but the idea of her entire family leaving her was more worrisome. At 19, she had the option to stay in London with her grandmother, but her father talked her into giving the United States a try. Her father, Lex, was a businessman who wanted to move to America to see if it was easier to run his business there than in London, which was becoming less affordable with each passing year. Lex had family in Ohio, but his wife, Betty, said Ohio was too cold. Lex loved old western movies and horses, so he decided to move to Texas. He liked the idea of living out the American dream and wanted his family to try the experience as well. The family settled a bit outside of Houston in a town called Humble, and Farah started looking for jobs. She wanted to be a travel agent and managed to find a job that could put her on the path to that career. She started working as a ticket agent at the Houston airport, and once she got used to the fast-paced environment, she liked it quite a bit. She also found someone that she liked quite a bit. Another ticket agent named Robert Frada showed her the ropes at work, and the two became friendly right away. Before leaving London, or perhaps during the very sparse visits that Farah and her fiancé had during this time, it's likely that they discussed the possibility that long distance would not work out for them. When Farah became serious with Robert Frada and started dating him, she sent a letter to her fiancé to let him know, and he responded back that he was already seeing someone else as well. She mailed back her ring and the two left it open-ended, that perhaps fate would bring them back together someday, but being an ocean apart was not working for them in the present. 
Robert Frotta was known for being a charmer and even a bit of a ladies' man around the airport where the two worked. He was handsome and obsessive about bodybuilding, and he'd had flings with a few other women who worked at the airport, but he seemed ready to settle down with Farah. Some of the other girls who dated him tried to hint to Farah that he might not be right for her, but she thought they were just jealous. Over the next two years, their romance blossomed, and Farah adjusted to life in America. When Robert decided he wanted to pop the question, he let Farah know first, then said he would need to formally ask Lex for his blessing as he knew her father was old-fashioned. Robert arranged a formal meeting with Lex to ask for Farah's hand, and Lex let him know, quote, You know she's my only girl, and she's very precious to me. She's my baby. She's grown up, but she's still my baby to me. Robert assured him that they were deeply in love and that he wanted nothing but the best for her. They got married in May of 1983 at a Catholic church in Humble, and the wedding was uneventful in the best way. Everything went according to plan, and everyone seemed enthusiastic about their future. The Fradas hit ups and downs in those first few years of marriage like any couple. Robert struggled to find a new job after accepting a layoff payout from the airline. He tried to go into business with Lex, but didn't have the motivation to work for himself. Eventually, he found his calling in public safety, working first as a firefighter, then moving into police work in nearby Missouri City, Texas. The couple had their first son, Bradley, in December of 1986. Two years later, another boy, Daniel, was born in the summer of 1988. To the outside world, their marriage seemed happy, but Ferris' family noticed that during her pregnancies, she would often become depressed and withdrawn. Her parents tried to probe a bit to find out if something was wrong, but Farah never wanted to talk about it. A few months after Daniel was born, Farah broke the news to her family that she and Robert were separating, but she would not talk about why. That only lasted a month, though, and the two got back together, and soon after, Farah revealed to her family that she was pregnant once again. Lex tried to talk to her about whether another baby was really what she and Robert needed, but Farah did not want to discuss the problems they were having. After a bit of prying, though, she did confess that she thought having another baby might have been a mistake. Lex tried talking to Robert, who insisted that Farah was the one causing all the problems. He said she was unhappy without any reason to be. In May of 1990, Amber Nicole was born, the Frada's third child. They were living together again, and Farah seemed determined to try and make things work. For the next two years, they all lived together as the children learned to walk and talk, and little Bradley even started school. It was clear to Farah's parents that she was having emotional ups and downs, but she seemed determined to keep the family together. By early 1992, Farah and Robert were fighting so often that they were once again talking about divorce. Robert moved out and got an apartment closer to his work. Once again, Lex pressed Robert to tell him what was wrong, and Robert said nothing was wrong on his end. It was all Farah. Lex confronted his daughter, and she said, quote, I cannot live with this man. I don't want to discuss all the whys, but I simply cannot live with this man. I must get away from him. There's so much you don't know, and I cannot talk about it with you, but I cannot live with him. Farah filed for divorce on March 12, 1992. She got emergency custody of the kids and told her attorney that she was filing for divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty. When Robert was served the divorce papers, he threw them on the ground and said, quote, She will be dead before she can ever get a divorce. By that time, Robert's co-workers and friends all knew what had been the cause of their marital problems. But Farah's family was in the dark, with only a few very close friends knowing what was going on. 
Eventually, she told her lawyer as she needed to provide evidence that Robert had been exceptionally cruel to her, so she finally began to detail on the record what had gone so terribly wrong in their marriage. There were many things wrong. Robert would forget to feed the children if Farah wasn't around. He insisted on keeping a pet boa constrictor in the house even after it had bitten Bradley. He used steroids as a regular part of his workout routine, which gave him terrible mood swings where he would yell at the children for no reason. But the biggest problem they had was with their sex life. Apparently, the reason Farah had been so hesitant to discuss their marital problems was because Robert's sexual demands were so bizarre and embarrassing. He wanted to have an open marriage and tried to talk Farah into sleeping with another woman. He wanted Farah to hit him while he masturbated. Most disturbingly of all, he frequently brought up his fantasy of having Farah urinate on his face and defecate in his mouth. Unsurprisingly, Farah wanted no part of any of that, but Robert made it clear that if she wouldn't give in to his sexual demands, she was failing him as a wife. I mean, if those were the requirements, I would gladly accept the failure, but that's just me. After filing formally, the prospect of raising the children in separate homes started to worry Farah to the point that she wondered if she should find a way to work things out. Farah and Robert both made lists of what they would need to stay together. Robert's list was almost entirely sexual and involved Farah getting plastic surgery to become more attractive to him. Farah's list involved Robert being better with the kids and being a more active father. Farah was hoping that if she gave in to Robert's plastic surgery demands, she might be able to talk him into counseling to deal with his obsessive sexual fetishes. In August of 1992, Farah got breast implants and a rhinoplasty. After she had mostly recovered, she let Robert move back in with her and the kids. Just two weeks later, he was out again. Even though she was still recovering from surgery, he made it clear he was not going to back down from his sexual demands. He initially put the surgery costs on one of his credit cards, but after Farah kicked him out, he said the bill should be her responsibility as they were no longer together. He said he was, quote, not going to pay for somebody else to play with what he had paid for. Depositions and arguments followed and escalated as the Fraudas prepared to formally face each other in court. Farah admitted all of her grievances during that time, even the most personal ones about Robert's strange fetishes and his occasional sexual abuse, coercing her into acts she was not comfortable with. She talked about the day-to-day as well and Robert's general neglect of the children. Robert gave a deposition in return where he made up excuses and said Farah had twisted his words. He said he'd only ever taken steroids for medical reasons and that he was actually the more responsible parent because Farah wanted to destroy their marriage and have the kids grow up in a broken home. He said he'd considered an open marriage, but only to see if that could appease Farah's desire to be somewhat separated while still raising the children together. But he adamantly denied he'd ever asked Farah to perform any of the lewd sexual acts she'd described. He wanted nothing but to raise his children in a good Christian household. Right. There were numerous delays with the custody battle. Farah went through a few lawyers, the judge who was meant to preside over the case passed away, and general bureaucracy kept delaying things. Both of the Fradas were very fond of the gym they'd worked out together at, called the President and the First Lady Gym. So they both kept going, but Farah would often pick times when she knew Robert wouldn't be there. During that time, both of them were making new friends and acquaintances there with very different goals in mind. 
Shortly after Robert moved out and Farah accepted that divorce was imminent, one of her friends at the gym introduced her to another regular named David Dietz. Farah was still recovering physically from her surgery, and emotional recovery from her marriage would likely not even begin until the divorce was over, but David interested her right away. The two began a very slow romance. When Farah felt safe introducing her children to David, they immediately liked him, and he was fond of them as well. David understood that Farah had a lot going on in her life, so the two went on dates sparingly, when she could find the time between meeting with lawyers and spending time with the kids. Occasionally, they would all go on outings together, out to dinner, or bringing the kids to the zoo. Farah was able to get a small glimpse into what life might be like after the divorce when she was able to fully pursue romance and even marriage with someone who loved her. The weeks turned into months, which turned into years as the custody battle dragged on until 1994. But while Farah was pursuing a life beyond the divorce, Robert was spending his time stewing on the fact that he might lose custody of the children and have to pay child support. Since at least the late 80s, Robert had been cheating on Farah with numerous sexual partners. One woman named Minnie Lawrence had met Robert over a phone dating service in 1989. They would occasionally have sex over the phone, which escalated to an in-person affair. Minnie was also sexually adventurous and would participate in some of Robert's fantasies. The two would engage in scat play and BDSM, but Minnie drew the line at anything involving Robert's wife. She knew he was married and he would occasionally proposition her for a threesome, but to Minnie it sounded like Robert's wife didn't really want to be involved, and it was unclear if she even knew about her husband's various affairs. The two kept up their affair for years before Minnie started to distance herself. Despite the fact that he was having an affair with her, Minnie had always thought Robert sounded like a decent husband and father to his family, and she liked that about him. She thought he was just someone who needed to look outside of his marriage for his sexual fantasies, and Robert had occasionally implied that his wife even knew that he and Minnie were seeing each other. But in 1994, Robert started to refer to his wife as a bitch, and talk about her in increasingly disturbing ways. One day, after a flood in Houston, Minnie called Robert to see if he and his family were okay, and he asked her out of the blue if she knew anyone who would kill his wife. Specifically, he asked her if she knew any black people who would do it. Minnie thought he was telling a bad joke and brushed him off, but the encounter had left her worried. Minnie was not the only woman Robert had been having an affair with. He kept a detailed address book filled with various women's numbers. Several of them he met at the President and First Lady Gym, apparently blatantly scouting out affair partners even though Farah also worked out there. In his address book, he wrote notes on their physical characteristics, what color their eyes and hair were, if they worked out, and he'd even made a note that one of the women had called another woman pretty, no doubt searching for the threesome he wanted so badly. He wrote down ages as well, many of which were younger than him. One of the girls, Penny Adams, was just 20 years old. She was in a bit of a rebellious phase and had flirted with Robert, but his aggressive advances scared her and her friends. When he asked her, a woman he barely knew, if she knew anyone who would kill his wife, she stopped speaking to him. Over the next several months, Robert asked almost everyone he knew if they would kill Farah. There were over a dozen people who he discussed the matter with, and almost all of them wrote it off as joking or just blowing off steam due to the stressful divorce battle. Like his request with many, many of his attempts at hiring a hitman had racist undertones. He told one friend, quote, 
some Italian you are, when the friend said he didn't know any assassins. Another friend asked Robert why on earth he would ask him if he knew any hitman, and Robert responded, quote, Because you're Mexican, John, I thought you might know some of your people who would do something like that. He told one friend that he carried a gun with him at all times, so that if he ran into far around town, he could kill her and make it look like a carjacking. One acquaintance made the mistake of complaining to Robert about his wife, so Robert proposed to him that they could kill each other's wives, all as strangers on a train. It got to the point where he told so many people he was going to kill her that he started telling people he was doing it intentionally so there would be too many leads for police to follow if she died. Except that what he was doing would only leave them with one lead, him. One of Robert's friends, James Podorski, realized Robert was serious when he started telling him the exact amount of money he was offering and that it would come from an offshore account. James said he believed Robert was seriously looking into killing Farah, but that he didn't go to the police because he thought no one would take him up on his offer. An interview of Robert's co-workers revealed he'd largely stayed away from asking his fellow police officers if they would kill his wife. The one co-worker did remark that Robert, quote, tells everybody about wanting to have a woman shit on him. Though he controlled himself more at work, he did still tell two of his co-workers that he'd thought about killing Farah, and that, surely as a police officer, he wouldn't get more than five years. Neither of these men did anything about Robert's threats and thought he was joking. Robert would eventually talk someone into scaring Farah for him. One of his friends from the gym, a man named Joe Prystash, had experience with breaking and entering and had a history of violence on his rap sheet as well. He'd once been charged with attempting to kill his brother-in-law, but the charges were dropped. It was the early morning hours of June 28, 1994, when the plan was carried out. Sometime between 3 and 4 a.m., Farah woke up to find Joe wearing a ski mask walking into her bedroom. Daniel was asleep in the bed with her and woke up alongside her when she screamed. Joe told her that he'd come to talk to her about Bob. Bradley and Amber Nicole heard the commotion and ran into the room, and Farah told the masked man, quote, Whatever you were going to do, don't do it in front of my children, please. Joe shut the children out of the bedroom. He was drunk and had brought a flask of something with him, as well as a stun gun. He tortured Farah with a stun gun, shocking her, but didn't say anything else aside from that he was there on Robert's behalf. He then left and took her cell phone so she couldn't call 911. Farah had another phone in the house, and police got to the scene quickly. They found that the intruder had broken in by drilling a hole in a window and unlocking the back door. Farah had her own suspicions, as she thought she'd recognize the voice of the man who attacked her. Joe had been Robert's friend for several years by that point, and Farah had met him several times. But he'd been in disguise, so she couldn't be sure. After that, the investigation stalled. Farah took the kids and moved back in with her parents while they installed a new security system, and she took some time to recover from the attack. Robert was later questioned about the incident. What happened? Well, I never really got the straight story. Um, according to my children, uh, somebody came in the house, bypassing the alarm system and everything else, did nothing, but... And, I mean, according to Farah, what she told detectives was that he said that he was there to quote, this is what they said to me, get, have my ass in a sling. Yet, I'm listed in the phone book, you know, I mean, I'm easy to get to, so I don't know. But, so yeah, I, I never, 
did understand that one. I thought that was a stunt that she was pulling. He claimed that someone must have done it just to mess with him. Of course, Farah is attacked and Robert makes himself the victim. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The custody hearing was slowly moving along with delays in preparation, and finally, a trial date was set for November 28, 1994. As the hearing approached, Robert thought he might have finally found the right person for the job in Joe. Joe was friends with a man named Howard Guidry, who had a less extensive criminal background than Joe, but made it clear he was looking to expand his criminal skills. He hardly knew Joe, but he had made sure to drop hints that he would do anything for money. He wanted to get a nest egg saved up so he could start dealing cocaine. Together, the two men began to discuss working together to kill Farah. Robert didn't speak to Howard directly, but gave Joe extensive notes on Farah's schedule and day-to-day -day activities. Joe and Howard would later tell different stories about what their planning process was for the murder. According to Howard, Joe and Robert considered having Joe rape Farah before killing her to make it look like the motive had been a sexual assault. Joe had no qualms about the assault and told Howard he found Farah attractive and would gladly rape her, but evidently he decided he didn't want to be the one to kill her in case things went wrong and the plan was abandoned. Joe, of course, denied that later. Howard claimed he was only supposed to be the getaway driver and that the other men changed the plan on him last minute. Nevertheless, he eventually agreed to be the one to do the killing. Eventually, Robert decided the easiest way to kill Faro would be while the children were at Sunday school. On nights when they went to Sunday school, Robert was allowed to keep them past 8 o'clock, which was normally the scheduled handoff time, but Farah always made sure she was home by 8 anyway in case the kids had to leave church early. The men set the date for November 8th, and Robert gave Joe a gun, ironically one he'd bought 10 years prior to keep around the house to protect his family in case of a home invasion. In addition to Howard, Joe's girlfriend also knew about the plot to kill Farah. Mary Gipp had only been dating Joe for a matter of months, but she thought she was in love with him. Joe was struggling financially, so she'd bought him a pager and he stayed at her place frequently. Like anyone who knew Robert Frada casually, Mary knew he'd been asking around town to try to find someone to kill his wife, and they kept her updated as the plan escalated. Joe didn't try to hide the fact that he and Howard were going to kill Farah together because they needed her help. The plan involved using the pager Mary had gotten for Joe, and Mary being Joe's alibi. Mary was upset about the whole thing, but didn't call the police. On the day the murder was scheduled to take place, she left work early and sat at home. She thought about calling Farah, but couldn't remember what her last name was. Howard came to the apartment and Joe joined him, and as the two drove off, she felt guilty but still did nothing. Normally, Robert would just drop off the children and leave them at Sunday school, but he stayed the whole service on that occasion. Robert's pager was going off frequently and he used the church phone at least five times that night. He meant to give himself a reliable alibi, but all he managed to do was draw suspicion as that was one of the only times he'd ever stayed for a church service and he kept getting up to use the phone. While Robert was at church, Joe drove Howard close to the Frada family home. 
he gave him the gun and pager and posted up at a payphone outside a nearby grocery store. There was a large playhouse in the backyard, and Howard hopped the fence and went to hide inside until Farah got home. At approximately 8 p.m., Farah arrived home as per usual. Their neighbors across the street, Darren and Laura Holsher, would become the unfortunate witnesses to what was about to unfold. They heard a gunshot and looked out the window in time to see Farah scream and fall to the ground inside her garage. Howard wasn't sure he'd killed her, so he stepped closer and shot her once again in the head. The family across the street had yet to draw their blinds and realized that the gunman might have seen them watching, so they killed the lights in their house and called 911. The Holshers saw Howard get into a silver car with one headlight and were able to later identify him as he hadn't worn a mask. After the car fled, Darren ran to Farah to see if he could help. Farah was still breathing, but had already lost a considerable amount of blood. He knew Farah was religious, and he made the sign of the cross to give her her last rites. The EMTs arrived quickly and initially thought there might be hope after they stabilized her because they only saw one gunshot wound that had grazed her skull. She was airlifted to the hospital, but pronounced dead shortly after, as there was a second much deeper wound that the EMTs had missed as it was concealed by blood and hair. Robert arrived with the kids shortly after, and everyone told him what had happened. He called the hospital, and the worker who took his call was immediately shocked at Robert's lack of surprise or emotion. They later said that he sounded annoyed at the whole thing, and impatient. He didn't seem worried at all, he just wanted to get an answer as quickly as possible about if Farah was dead yet. After he arrived at the scene, Robert tried to leave, saying he wanted the kids to be able to say their goodbyes to Farah in the hospital. Police also noted his lack of surprise or concern and wouldn't let him leave. They searched his car, where they found just over $1,000 in cash and a gun. That was the other gun that he'd purchased to carry around with him in case he decided to kill Farah and make it look like a carjacking. Lex and Betty got to the scene soon after Robert and the kids. David had been trying to call Farah because he knew she usually got home right at 8pm. He was calling every few minutes to see what was going on. After the backers arrived, Lex finally picked up Farah's phone and tearfully told him Farah was being taken to the hospital. They all went to visit her and found out she'd passed. When David heard the news, he blamed Robert right away. He said, quote, I'll kill him myself. And the backers had to restrain him from trying to find Robert to confront him. On the night of the murder, police held Robert for 14 hours and questioned him. He had a well-rehearsed recounting of his alibi that night, and not once did he seem upset that Farah was dead. He mentioned several times that he was also a police officer, and in general, he was unemotional and smug about the whole thing. He actually spent a lot of time planting the seeds that someone was actually trying to set him up. What, what reason was somebody have to come in your house like that? You know, either, first of all, I've got nothing to steal, but like I said, the only things I'm missing... All right, that bottle of wine the one time when somebody came in when my buddy was there, um, the tapes, my diary, which, it, which my diary was strictly for the uh, divorce. It was strictly divorce diary. I don't keep diaries. And the check, like I said, that was just a random check that you made out to me. So I have no idea. You know, uh, no TDs taken, no VCRs taken. Was the like, check ever cashed? No, it was a bad check. Should we file a report? No, I, I just found all this out relatively recently. And, and that's why I told my attorney. And, and to me, I didn't know how I was going to prove this because at first I just thought I misplaced everything. And it wasn't until last week um, that I happened to notice my garage door. I still don't understand why somebody would come in your house. You and me both. 
That's what I'm saying. I don't know. Well, seeing that they, if they had that much access to you, they'd just kill you. you you're right. You're 100% right. Yeah. And, and that's what I've been saying to my friends, too. It's like somebody's fucking with me, but not trying to kill me. And that's why when Bradley called me up Sunday... You're a police officer? Yeah. When he was released, one of the officers who was upset about the ordeal threw Robert's car keys at him when it was time to return them, and the keys scratched his cheek, drawing blood. When Robert saw the mob of reporters waiting for him, he decided to make the most of the limelight. He said he wanted to find out who killed his wife and couldn't believe the police kept him from his children at such a dire time. He smiled and laughed quite a bit, joking around with the reporters. Joe and Mary watched the press conference from their house, and Joe said that Robert better keep his mouth shut and stop smiling so much. Surprisingly, when Joe had gotten back the previous night and it hit Mary that they'd really gone and killed an innocent woman, she finally decided to act. She had heard him unloading his gun into the trash when he got home. After he went to sleep, she wrote down the serial number of the gun and saved the shells. She hid them in various places around the apartment, but did not take them to the police. In those first few days, Robert made virtually no attempts to hide his lack of concern about his wife being killed. Farah had over $235,000 in life insurance money and an overseas account, and Robert was only able to make himself wait a few days before he called and demanded the money. When he was informed that he wouldn't get the payout until the murder investigation was solved, he was furious. Police were quick to name Robert as a suspect in the media shortly after the investigation began. He was suspended from his job, but still didn't make any attempt to publicly display any concern. The night of Farah's funeral, Robert visited a strip club. The backers were granted emergency custody of the children because Robert was a suspect. The trial for custody was delayed until mid-December, but with police no closer to solving the case, the presiding judge decided to make a ruling. In cases concerning the immediate welfare of children, the principle that one is innocent until proven guilty is not always able to be followed. In the U.S., if a judge feels children might be in immediate danger, they're allowed to operate with an abundance of caution. Hmm, if only that was the case with Shirley Turner. During the custody hearing, five people said that Robert had either offered them money to kill Farah or asked them if they knew anyone who would kill someone for the right amount of money. The people who spoke up were all workout buddies or casual acquaintances who didn't even know Robert very well. One testified that he had assured him nothing would go wrong because he was a cop and implied the other police would side with him and help him cover up the murder. The backers told the courtroom that the children were all very young and didn't know what was going on. They said they'd told them that their father wasn't with them because he was out catching bad guys, as the children, Bradley especially, all looked up to him. They didn't want to sour the children's relationship with their father on the slim chance he was innocent. And if he wasn't, they were all too young to quite grasp the concept of murder anyway. On December 15, 1995, the backers were awarded custody of the children. The judge ruled in favor of barring Robert from seeing the children until the investigation concluded. He said that his ruling was based solely on the fact that Robert was the prime suspect in Farah's murder, but he did also say that in regards to Robert's sexual behavior, he had never heard something so bizarre in all of his years working in the justice system. With the children out of immediate danger, Lex and Betty needed to start worrying about their safety. 
Apparently, Robert had been making a point to tell mutual acquaintances that whoever had killed Farah might come after her parents as well. One day, at the auto shop where Lex worked, a tall man wearing gloves stormed in and demanded to see him. When his secretary told the man that Lex was out on business, he called her a liar and kicked open the door to Lex's office. When he saw Lex really was gone, he smashed a flower pot against the wall and yelled at the secretary to, quote, tell Lex I'll be back. Police started watching the backer's house after that, and thankfully the man did not reappear. That was all happening right around Christmas and disrupted the small amount of normalcy that Lex and Betty tried to bring to the holiday for their grandchildren. Shortly after that, things took another strange turn when someone called Lex and told him they knew who killed Farah. Lex wanted to know more details about who was calling, but the caller said he wanted to only be known as Bill. Nervous after the recent events, Lex told the caller they couldn't talk right then and arranged to meet later. Lex then called the police and told them what was going on. Police had Lex call the man back and set up a meeting at a diner where they felt there were enough windows they could keep an eye on everything. Police went into the diner undercover and watched from unmarked vehicles in the lot as Lex walked in. They gave him a cell phone that was bugged to record everything and told him that if anyone started shooting, he should zigzag. When Lex walked in, a large man in a baseball cap sought him out and the two sat down to talk. The man told Lex that he was actually a police officer, but that he also worked as a hitman. He explained that he had come from Dallas, where there was an intricate network of lawyers and police officers who worked together to mete out vigilante justice. He said that he would be more than willing to take out Robert Frada, who was clearly responsible for killing Farah, but he seemed hesitant to talk specifics at the meeting. They set up another meeting shortly after at a restaurant in Humble. This time, Bill told Lex that he would charge only $10,000 and that he could kill Robert that night. He said Lex could take his time paying him whenever he could get a hold of the money. Lex agreed, and Bill told him that he was going to kill Robert by blowing him up with dynamite. Police stormed his car when he walked out of the restaurant and found that he had both a gun and dynamite in his vehicle. His real name was William Edward Planter, and he went to jail for attempted murder. He was in fact a retired police chief, but any connection to some elaborate network of hitmen was never uncovered. When Robert's lawyers were informed about the scandal, they were shocked that police knew there was a hitman gunning for Robert, but they didn't warn him. As far as Robert's accomplices go, police suspected Joe Prystash of being involved right away. They knew Farah had suspected he'd been the man to break into her house, and he matched the description of the getaway driver at the scene of her murder. But investigators hit a wall in questioning him. He simply would not budge. They decided to focus on Mary, as the phone calls that Robert made to Joe that night were going to the pager that was technically under her name. Apparently, after Mary hid the shells, she would get paranoid and move the evidence around, hiding it in a potted plant or in various drawers. Eventually, she decided to keep the shells on her person. One day, while she and Joe were in the mall together, she realized she had the shells on her and she panicked and dumped them in the trash. She kept the serial number, though. Mary began to slowly talk to the police, only revealing a bit of information at a time and trying to find out what a deal would be like for being a cooperating witness. March 1st saw another interesting development when Howard Guidry tried to rob a bank. He and a few accomplices succeeded, using the same gun he'd killed Farah with. Apparently, he and Joe had shuffled the gun back and forth between them, urging the other to get rid of it, but they never did. 
Howard and his accomplices didn't get far from the bank before they were arrested. Days later, Mary Gipp confessed fully to what she knew about the murder and that Howard had been the trigger man. Howard initially tried to claim he'd only been the getaway driver, but shortly after confessed his true role in the murder. With Howard in custody and Mary ready to testify, police were able to put more pressure on Joe. Joe first arranged to speak to an investigator while out on a walk to ask him hypothetically what would happen if he confessed. The officer told him that nothing could be guaranteed. Joe knew that with Mary and Howard already being in jail, he was likely done for and decided to cooperate shortly after. Howard and Joe both blamed the other one for escalating things. Howard claimed he only agreed to be the getaway driver and they made him the gunman at the last minute. Joe claimed that Howard was willing to kill Farah right away and that, quote, he needed to make some money and he didn't care what he did. Both men claimed to be very broken up about the whole thing. Sure. Robert was arrested on April 21, 1995. Police had to wrestle him to the ground as his mother was home and he said he didn't want to be handcuffed in front of her. The media had gotten wind of his arrest and as they brought him into the station, he told reporters, quote, I didn't do it. I'm praying for justice. The trial was swift and straightforward. Robert was to be tried first as his guilt would be needed to build cases for his accomplices. The public listened in horror as numerous witnesses all confessed they'd heard of Robert's plan to kill his wife for months before the actual slaying. Minnie Lawrence testified firsthand about Robert's sexual perversions. She had been the first person to call the police and implicate Robert when she saw the news about Farah. The jury easily found him guilty. On April 23, 1996, Robert Frada was sentenced to death. Robert did not show any emotion when his death sentence was read out loud. Lex told the press after the sentence was handed down that it was what he was hoping for. He said, quote, There can be no punishment in this world severe enough that can justify the everlasting grief, pain, and suffering he has brought upon his three minor children. Howard and Joe were both sentenced to death in their subsequent trials, though their sentence has yet to be carried out as of 2023. Robert's lawyers tried numerous appeals over the years to reduce his sentence. They argued that the execution drugs were expired, and that argument was thrown out. They argued that the prosecution hypnotized a witness and made her statement unreliable. They argued the ballistics weren't accurate, or that the jury was not impartial. Robert's conviction was actually later overturned because a judge said that the way his co-conspirator stories had been admitted into evidence did not follow the proper legal procedures. That same judge also wrote that Robert was, quote, egotistical, misogynistic, and vile. A retrial in 2009 saw the death sentence upheld, however. Lex and Betty put their lives on hold to raise their grandchildren. Immediately following the trial, Bradley was told enough to learn in simple terms that his father had been responsible for the death of his mother, and the others would learn the truth as they grew up. Lex and Betty once again went to parent-teacher conferences and soccer games. They went to band concerts and read report cards and did all of those things they'd once done for Farah. They became parents again, and though they hadn't expected to do so at their age, they raised the children in a loving home. When Amber turned 18 and all of the children were of age, they went to visit their father in prison just once. They asked him why he killed their mother. He refused to answer them, and they never went to see him again. On January 10, 2023, Robert Frada was executed. 
He was pronounced dead at 7.49 p.m., nearly three decades after he'd had Farah Frada killed. He lived as a monster, and he died as a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.